This episode of the Exploration Radio podcast was made possible through sponsorship by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. To learn more about the AIG, the programs it supports, or to become a member, please go to aig.org.au. This episode of Exploration Radio is also sponsored by the Minerals Council of Australia. Find out why there's more to Australian mining and join the Friends of Australian Mining supporter network by visiting minerals.org.au. That's minerals.org.au. In 2006, researchers from the Institut de Recherche pour le Développement, or the Institute of Research for Development in Toulouse, founded a research project in West Africa called the West African Exploration Initiative, or WAXI. The main aim of this project was to better understand the geology, tectonics, and metallogenesis of West Africa. The culmination of this objective was the founding of a non-for-profit organization in 2020 called the Agate Project, which now continues the work of providing opportunities to locals in the region to further develop their careers in earth and planetary sciences. On this week's episode, we are joined by Mark Jessel and Nico Thibault, who have both been involved in the Waxi project from nearly the beginning and now are two of the people behind the Agate project. Let's find out more about these two projects. Mark, Nico, welcome to the podcast. Um, maybe we'll start by you telling us a little bit about your background. We'll start with you, Nico. All right. So <laughs> my name is uh, Nico Thibault. Um, I'm a researcher at uh, the Center for Expression Targeting. I did all my undergrad between France and the UK many, many years ago now. Um, and I'm a structural geologist uh, from, from training originally. And uh, yeah, been working in a range of projects in Australia and um, West Africa in South America for the last decade or so and uh, work closely with Mark just sitting here next to me. And so what brought you to Australia? A woman. Ah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Excellent. But rocks did, uh, did, uh, did was part, were part of the story as well. Yeah, so. okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we won't ask you in which order because yeah, <laughs> I get you in trouble. And yourself, Mark? Yeah, um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I grew up in England and I then went to the States to do a PhD and came to Monash University in Melbourne to do a postdoc and then went to France for 12 years and then came back to UWA about eight years ago now. And I'm also a structural geologist and um, worked on a range of things, microstructures, 3D modeling, but also a lot on these regional tectonic syntheses. Cool. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, developed countries in the next hour or so, and I guess we should start by talking about um, how you guys got started in West Africa, and it directly ties to your French connections, and perhaps we could probably frame this a little bit by talking about what we call the resource curse, and just the issue with resources in developing countries. So maybe take us through what you think and what you've learned about the resource curse from your time yeah yeah well if we're talking about how I started it's I arrived in France I was on a lot of soft money projects and the lab I was in in Toulouse has long um, a long history of working doing geoscience in Africa and with African uh, partners um, just because many of the the countries are francophone and there's a long colonial and then post-colonial history what I saw was that there was very few researchers in France working with industry and the countries in West Africa were kind of working in their own space. 
and I was, in, I guess, inspired by what had happened, what I'd seen in Australia when I was here before that, which was things like the South Australian Exploration Initiative that were getting surveys, universities, companies together and working on a, a problem together. So I stole the idea, title, just about everything, and took it to Amara, and they thought it was interesting, and we worked up a project on on getting the geological surveys, the universities in West Africa and in France and elsewhere, working on a project together. In terms of the resources curse, yeah, I mean, it's it's real, but it's, it, it's, there's much more to it than that. Yeah. And when, the way I look at it is that resources or any sort of resource, whether it's minerals or oil or anything else, is a sort of amplifier of what's going on in the country. So if the country is is got governance issues, then pouring money into it from any source is probably likely to make those issues worse. And the countries that are doing well out of resources are the ones that are better managed. Mm -hmm. And so there's sort of there seems to be a, also a dichotomy between what happens in oil and gas. Maybe because the money is so much more than it is in minerals, we can only dream of having that sort of money coming out of minerals. But in oil and gas, it's you know, multiply everything by ten or a hundred, and so the and with a much less local input. So I think you know there is a resources curse, but it's it doesn't have to be that way. And I think there's a lot of com countries in Africa that have demonstrated, like Australia, that. That it can can actually underpin the economy in a good way. So, Mark, I, you mentioned the fact that you know there wasn't this pedigree of doing these kind of large collaborative projects, uh, particularly with the industry input. So, from the point of view, when you were trying to set it up, you know, was that an impediment in the fact that there wasn't a pedigree? I, I guess I have to shout out to Amara now because Amara does this thing because of their bread and butter. I was sitting in a, a rather grotty office in in a very old lab in Toulouse. It, it doesn't really make any difference to them. They don't, you know, it does, they basically, if they see a project and they, they think it's of value to industry, they just go and do it. You don't even have to be in a university. So I started the project without having a, a job, as it were. And mm -hmm. The project gave me a job, so that was good. But, and within the university, I was working, I actually, when I did get a job, I was hired by an organization called the IRD, which is the Institute for Research for Development. And there isn't really an equivalent in Australia, but the closest thing would be if you took CSIRO and took out the I for industry and put in development, combination of working with developing countries and doing research. And yep. so they were totally on board because they could see that it was involving the local universities, local geological surveys. And so... For them, you know, money is money, so it, it didn't matter. So they were supportive of it. So in these projects, how big is that local development kind of component? Yeah, is that a benefit as well as an impediment in, in the fact that when you try to get these big projects going, you need to have that local involvement? But then, you know, depending on where you go in certain countries and stuff, that could also be an impediment in kind of getting these projects up and running? I, well, I don't think we would have got it up and running if we, we we would have got it up and running, but it wouldn't have continued as long as it, you know, each group had supplies different things to the project. Exactly. So, I mean, the industry <laughs> supplies money, but also access to, to deposits for study. The geological surveys have databases full of geophysics and, mm -hmm. and maps. The local universities have the lecturers and the students who are 
able to do research. Who And also, let's face it, when I went there, I knew nothing. I mean, literally nothing about the geology of West Africa, whereas all these people had spent their entire lives looking at it, learning way more than they were for the first five, and probably still am. <laughs> Let, let's be honest about this, probably still learning more. I'm getting more out of it than, than anybody else in terms of publications and, and understanding and all those things. So we couldn't have done it without the logistical support, but also the data and knowledge that all the local groups had. So maybe we should tell people what, what Waxy is, because that's what we're talking about, mm-hmm. is how it came about, who's involved, and how you both... Uh, have been involved since you know Mark started it, obviously. So take us through a journey of what Waxy is, who's involved. Yeah. Well, Waxy involved, I mean, I guess in that's just building up on what Mark was just saying, is, is kind of a collaboration between end members that have very different objectives uh, at the onset. So you've got the industry partners who are willing to develop um, their better understanding of the geology of the area to mm-hmm. kind of get some edge uh, on, on the exploration uh, exercise. You have academics that wants to do research, try to understand the geological problem. Um, and then you have uh, the, the surveys which are there to kind of, you know, document the geology for their own governance and, and, and government organization. Um, and each of those groups, basically, by joining through WAXI, get access to uh, uh, or closer to those respective objectives so so researchers are are you know get fantastic rocks to play with um, they they we interact between you know very large groups people that are from i don't know like something like 13 or 14 universities disseminated around the world in africa in europe australia united states um, you have the, the the surveys from all uh, the region which I guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but they were, they used to, to be a bit in, in silos, kind of, you know, isolated from one another. So the geological maps would, of Burkina would stop at the borders of Burkina Faso and then not necessarily join up very nicely with the one on the other side of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, and through Waxi, actually, they kind of managed to get a sense that they were a community of, of, of people working with similar objectives. So starting to, you know, coordinate the action as well through, through this exercise. And then the, the, yeah, the industry get access to, you know, cutting edge research, research, which provides real data for, for the exploration. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, and I guess that's where we have back through the, the, the capacity building and the, the development of skills uh, locally is they actually are able to grow the, the local workforce that, that they need to kind of uh, uh, deliver those resources down the track. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess it's, yeah, it's it's kind of a win-win-win type of situation. It is. So the obvious question I'll ask is: uh, Is it hard to manage all those vested interests in a group like that? Well, I mean, we've got Mark, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I'd like to say that, that Mark has Claire Dispar, yeah. has uh, Corinne Debar, and yeah. had Lenkabara too, and they did all the work. <laughs> you know, they, they are the ones herding cats on a daily basis. Yeah. These are the three. I mean, Lenka Baratu was a, a postdoc when we started and she got on a bus and visited every country in West Africa and spent, she, she loved it. I mean, it was great. But, and uh, she was the one that, you know, was the first point of contact for all of these surveys and universities and even companies saying, you know, we're, We'd like to start this bigger project. Do you want to get involved? And it's thanks to her that we got mm. the first stage. The second stage was was I had an admin assistant because after a year of the project on the second stage, the other leading researchers sat me down and said, Mark, you're not coping. 
And so you need to spend some of this admin budget on hiring somebody that will do the day-to-day stuff. Mm. So I, I did and I yeah, took yeah. advice and, and since then we've, and we've had Corinne Devine yeah. in, in Australia. And you, you need somebody who basically ch- chases up everything because nothing happens if you don't chase it mm. up. And I get too easily sidetracked by playing with computers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the reason why I asked that question is because there's the, you know, the rubber kind of meets the road kind of moment where you need people to kind of do that work, to do that leg work, to kind of set it up. And so, yeah, like how, yeah, is that uh, a difficult process or is it a, you know, from a point of view in that there's, if you have different people, you have different vested interests, they have a different value proposition that they want as well. So how, yeah, like someone has to agree to give up something to get, you know, the other person to get something. Well, I guess there's a lot of that of, you know, I mean, you've got a groups. I mean, if you know a little bit researchers, I mean, they're probably the hardest people to manage, yeah, yeah. because they're all kind of going in their own directions, regardless yeah. of what the boss is saying. Yep. Uh, but in the meantime, I guess, I mean, the, the, the very strong admin support, which I think is, is very key in, in, in herding the cats and making sure that this is happening. Yep. There's very short kind of, you know, meetings period. So every quarterly there's a report. And so that's something that is part of the, the charter that you you kind of almost sign by, by default when you come into a project like this, is you will do your periodic reports. And as Mark's saying, is, you know, uh, only you, if you're dead is the good excuse for you not to deliver, you know. Otherwise, there's no real good excuse for not kind of being on, on top of your game. Yep. And, and even with that, obviously, some people deliver more than others and, and so on. Or, or, you know, the initially good idea may not, turn out to be such a great idea and so it doesn't mm-hmm. really deliver but overall i guess um and i've been part really only in in waxy 3 i mean waxy 2 is when i started to interact with the with the projects so we are i guess yeah and maybe for the, the listeners we we are we've been running this project for what nearly 15 years, 15 years. uh so there's been three uh, stages we are working on the fourth one now um and so my experience has been that with with that kind of uh um way of managing project and people we actually are usually deliver above above expectation of what the industry signed for initially so just to add to that uh, the fact that we've you know amara has a very big baseball bat and they keep the researchers in line <laughs> but they also keep the company's expectations in line because it's it's too easy for one company that's part of a a consortium of 15 to say why why haven't you done more on this and then all the other 14 companies will say come on they've done this and they've done this and they've done this and so yes some some modules that that don't deliver but there are other modules that deliver three or four times what they promised Mm. and so Amara's really good at reminding people of what they signed they signed up for a collaborative project not a one-on-one big difference I mean I think it's interesting you mentioned the concept about you know managing expectations because you know, they, the risk of a project like this is that people can often have a view that it's going to be a panacea, like, you know, it's going to solve all their problems. And you don't really know that until you kind of go through the process to figure out what you can actually legitimately solve in the time frame you have and the resources you have. So I think that aspect of managing expectations, I, I would think, would have been a pretty important kind of... I think it's also in the way we design it, you know, like we, we're not um, designing targets for, for industry. This is not what we're doing. What mm-hmm. we're doing is is generating pre-competitive data sets, things that industry people will take and transform yep. into something probably more tangible from mm-hmm. an exploration point of view. Uh, and, I, and I think that in that sense, well, we only endeavor to 
you know, uh, uh, improve the understanding of the, the local geology, really. Um, and starting from where we started, I guess, in, in West Africa, if you compare with places like the Yilgan, for instance, in, in, our, in our backyard, uh, we've, when we've started, or even when I kind of joined in halfway through the, the waxy stages, um, I guess the knowledge was pretty much you could compare what it would have been in the Yilgan in the 80s. And I would say that today we probably have almost in places a better understanding of what the geology is in, in West Africa, mm -hmm. on the West African Craton, than we have in part of the Yilgan. So, so it's almost like, you know, it was harnessing all um, uh, the, the science that is uh, available uh, that had not been deployed on, on, on that part of the world. And to have that kind of collective approach, being able to go beyond borders and, and really look at that entity as one geological entity, really enable us to actually push that to that next stage, which yeah. I think is, yeah. So in some way, sorry, so one last thing. So in some ways, do you think that the main kind of objective of our big projects like this or, or for Waxi would have been to kind of A, uh, build the knowledge base to a, to a certain point where it's kind of uniformly equal in a lot of ways in different organizations, different entities, and then also yeah, in the same way kind of democratize it around. So, you know, from people like industry, survey, researchers, all kind of have that same level of understanding. I guess that's the, that's, that's the goal, yeah. I mean, to some yeah. extent, it's just really to try to, um, and we've, we've, there's a lot of demonstration about the value of pre-competitive data to make it available open source for... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, supporting an industry that will actually then come back into major uh, um, investment in each of the states that can potentially provide those data sets. Um, so from, from that sense, I think that clearly is, is, is a, a really added value from, from an industry perspective. Um, from a research point of view, I mean, w we were basically working on, you know, the, the, what was very much small, uh, or not, not necessarily small, but research initiative that were either governed in France or UK um, with local collaboration. But we've really, I think, managed to kind of create that community now of people uh, that, that are, mm -hmm. you know, working toward a, a better understanding of the, of the region. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that that would necessarily have happened without, I guess, the, 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 the project like Waxi, for instance. On that theme, um the thing that's always intrigued me about Waxy, I've been involved a couple of times as an industry person, is just the involvement of locals. So more than just the capacity building that you've done with students and stuff, but working with the geological surveys across many different countries, most of them which are francophone, which I guess is helpful, and we'll get to that in a minute when we talk about Saxy, about that challenge. But take, take me through some stories about working on how you're wel welcome or not welcome when you first started in terms of geological surveys. I, th I think it probably in both of our cases and in, in general, it helped the fact that I could pretend I was Australian so that you know, I wasn't English, I wasn't French. And being, being not French in, in Francophone West Africa is a huge advantage because, you know, there's a, there's a bit of history there yeah. and, and that history is still being written today. And so being, you know, being able to badly speak French and, and being, a, being not part of that system in the in the historical sense, I think, was definitely an advantage. Um, that's on a personal level. I think people, you know, we, we say that we, you know, it's not like we were the first people to do anything in West Africa. No. The BRGM had been there. Mm -hmm. They'd produced these fantastic maps before us. And in fact, that even in the 1910s, somebody had 
one individual had gone round West Africa and made this fantastic map that I have on my wall, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you stand yeah. far enough back, it looks like the map that we made. No, that's true. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's it, very true. You know, so it's, that's very you know, true. we've got to put it in context. But, and so there had been, and just prior to Waxing Pat, there was an initiative that the BRGM led called SIGAFRIC, which made a, a previous version of a, a holistic map for, for West Africa. But and they had involved the geological surveys as well, and to a certain extent the the um, the universities. But it was uh, it was quite a short project. It was basically it was a, a date. It was taking all the existing maps and putting them together and, and trying to harmonise them a bit. Whereas I think one of the things that I'm not sure if I'm answering the question here, but one of the things that that we really brought into West Africa was the use of geophysical data for regional mapping. And that hadn't been done. And that's one of the first things that happened even before Waxy started is that I was talking to Peter Williams, who was working for a company that was pre-Ampella yes. at the time. And they had all the mag data for Burkina Faso. And I took the mag data and I put the geology map on it. And I went, ooh, there's some work to do here. <laughs> and it was, you know, any, any, you know there's, there's 100 people in Australia with that skill that could have updated the maps. But it, it just that... That hadn't didn't exist in France, yeah. and it had yeah. therefore didn't exist much in West Africa, and mm-hmm. so that was a, something that we could bring from the Australian learning, which was how to use regional geophysics for mm-hmm. from, for geology and everything. And I guess it's it's that, and uh, you know, we get also all the, the the it's it's the multidisciplinary approach, I guess. You know, like it's not only it was not only a mapping project. The, the goal was not only to generate a new map of West Africa. It was to have you know, integrated with geophysics, but also the, the geochronology, also the the, the stratigraphy uh, across the craton. So that that these kind of pro- you know different products that are actually informing one another, which I guess created that that added value from a scientific point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a story kind of thing, I guess doing field work in um, my experience, rocking up in in in, uh, in in Cote d'Ivoire. So I was. As part of my involvement in WAX, I was looking at a, a geochron project that was trying to capture the evolution of the magmatic evolution um, across the, the whole craton. So we would do big regional travels across the continent, pretty much, um, and country by country. And yeah, one of the first experiences was setting up a project, and we wanted, by all, by by as much as we could, we wanted to have people uh, from the service to come along. Um, and so I've been, you know, saying, oh, you guys should come along. It'd be great, you know, and we'll have a working party. We, we ended up having 17 people coming with us. We were like a, we had, I think, six vehicles that were just touring across and all government vehicles and everything, which was just hilarious, really. Um, and, uh, but that ended up being, it was fantastic from a human point of view. We had the best time. Uh, from a geological point of view, 17 cars. I mean, you do about three ad crop a day. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like it took us, you know, like a, a much longer time to go across. But I mean, actually that involvement was, was great because the connection that we've generated then, you know, I have since then had students. Mm-hmm. Um, postdocs that are working in, in that part of the world. And, you know, it's very easy to set any, a field deployment because we've got all the all the connection and resources yeah. and that is actually is, is really essential for this type of project did you have any pushback when you guys started the project were there any parties that didn't like the idea um i think some i mean from memory some some surveys because of that ideas of pre-competitive data being open source 
that sometimes some survey which would sell their data uh, on a commercial, yeah. like on the model of, mm -hmm. you know, the BRGM, the French Geological Survey, yeah. does sell their data. They're not giving them for free. And so I guess that model got transposed a lot in, in many nations in, in, in West Africa. And as a result, some needed maybe, there was a, <laughs> needed maybe to be, to be uh, convinced that it was uh, a good idea and we're, some never we never manage you know no, yeah. I, I don't think we, we in general we didn't manage i mean no. the, the the people the the discussions we've had over open access data fair mm. data all those things in africa it it doesn't work at the moment no and it doesn't work because the geological surveys you are not loved the way they're loved in Australia. No, in, in the state governments and the federal government love their geological surveys because they see the value in them. Yeah. In Africa, it's they're, they're fairly low on the food chain. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, if, if you know if you've got if you're an African government, you've got to say, well, are we going to build schools so that more than eighty yeah. percent of our kids can go to school, or are we going to give money to the geological survey? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I'd make the same call. Yeah. And and I think to be fair, like, like you know, the setup in Australia is very unique in the way that you yeah. know uh, that how data is meant to be public and how it ha or eventually has to become public in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, the US is like that with US. SGS, but yeah. almost nobody else. Yeah. But it's but the you know the because of Waxy, the geological surveys get all of the data that we collect, and they can add it to their own collections. The companies that are partners get it. The university students can get it through that. So there is an opening up of the data, but it's but, but we that conversation about making the data free, just as we. we made no progress no that's right and it's <laughs> and it's not our main goal in the end i mean it would we, we we believe that it's the right thing to do but it's not for us to tell anybody what to do either so yeah yeah fair enough so what were geological standards like across countries at geological survey level it's it's interesting that it's like everything in west africa it's you can't just talk about one country no, it's no. incredibly heterogeneous some of them at that time, we're just coming out of civil wars like yeah. Liberia and Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. they, Côte d'Ivoire also. Côte d'Ivoire yeah. as well. Côte d'Ivoire was <laughs> in, in strife for a lot of waxy, so mm. it's coming out of it now, and that's great. But it's, you know, so those countries were in, you know, three of the 10 or 12 countries we worked in, basically we couldn't work there because it was just, there was no infrastructure, there was no electricity, there's, you know, just basic things weren't there, and they lost a lot of data during those mm -hmm. times. Countries like Ghana and Burkina had well-developed geological surveys. The you know again they were they were all trained by you know essentially the West African the French West African countries were all trained in France so the, the people went to France to do a PhD at a time when in France everybody was doing petrology chemistry so everybody that came, there's a certain generation of academics in West Africa that are all petrologists. Nothing against petrologists, but it's only one thing. And so the maps were all sort of very focused on the petrology and there was very little structure and zero geophysics. And so that was, you know, one of the courses we teach, which is making geology maps and geophysics, is, you know, it's there's still nobody teaching that. And, and it still, you know, in, in a sense, that's a failure because... By now, you think somebody would have taken it up, but maybe if we stopped teaching it, somebody would. Um, don't know what to do about that. <laughs> so, do all the um, Francophone countries have the same length 
to France? I mean, are they all variable? Or no, it's, it's, it's very dif- different depending on the country. Um, if you take Guinea, for instance, um, had a very different story post-colonial time from the rest of most of the West mm-hmm. African nations. Uh, and, and that basically seized completely the, the link uh, with, with France at the time. So, and, and again, then within, you know, if you compare Mali from Burkina Faso, from Senegal, I mean, France has been ongoingly present um, and, and, you know, continue to uh, project its influence, I guess, in the region, for better or worse. But, but to, to, to some extent, they're very different kind of uh, stories within each individual countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. With, with different histories of mining, too. And different, exactly. You know, yeah. Everybody knows that yeah, mining yeah. been mining for a thousand years. Exactly. Ghana's, you know, huge mining country, whereas... Senegal is much less, you know, it's much less a part of their story. I guess they probably are more even like looking on, on the oil and gas to some extent, um, yeah, the, the Great Basins, than, than the, the, the Malian or, or the Ghanaian. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, you, and you mentioned civil strife. I, I was in Cote d'Ivoire when the, one of the coups uh, during that period of time. You would have been restricted into places like Sierra Leone, but any, anywhere else? Well, we, now, do you avoid Mali? Yeah, it must be yeah. Mali well, now. There was, a, there was a, I mean, basically at the moment we can't go to Mali. Well, it's not that we can't. Mali, Burkina, Niger are basically yeah, out, yeah. out of the question. Mauritania was out for a while, but we could go there so it's, now. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's interesting. It's actually the map changes. Yeah, When I started working with Waxi, we could go to Mali. We were doing a project yeah. in, in Sadiola with uh, uh, Quentin Mazarel, who was a PhD at the time. And... Um, we could go there easily. Um, halfway through his, his project, there was a military coup, so he had to be evacuated. Um, and and as, a, as a consequence, it changed completely the dynamic of, of our ability to kind of go there because in principle, we, we don't really wish to go in places where things are just unstable and, and where wow. geology should not be, I guess, the, at the forefront of the local <laughs> but, worries. But, but also we have, a, you know, we take, have students. Exactly. There's a duty of care and so on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere that isn't safe. It's just and yeah. now I guess Côte d'Ivoire when I started was not really accessible but then throughout yeah, it it's been um, and as well as Sierra Leone and Liberia which are places which are we now you know considering as yeah. places we should be going in so is in. that one of the reasons uh, is that I guess one of the arguments for having these kind of long projects as well because things will kind of you know come in and out of that window uh, yeah so is that one of the arguments if, if, I don't think it's the main one. I think that, I mean, the main argument for having a long project is that geology is really hard and you can't just walk in yeah, there. And, okay. and, you know, it's, it's a huge area. It's the West, the West African Craton, if you take the whole thing, it's the same size as WA. Mm-hmm. So you can't go, oh, we're going to remap WA. And, in, three know, years. in three years. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we, we understand everything now. I mean, people are still setting up projects in the that's Yulgarn. It. That's it. And so that's, you know, the Yulgarn is somewhere that people have looked at quite a lot. So mm-hmm. the, I think, but there's the other side of that is that it takes time to establish trust. And one of the things, coming back to a question we had before about the geological surveys, there was pushback because at the beginning they said, we've seen people come in before saying, mm. we're going to work with you. And they walk off with the data and we never see them again. Yeah. And then they sell the data as a consultant to third parties. And that happens every day of the week. Mm-hmm. So the, to establish trust, both from the companies that we could actually do it because, you know, I had a small track record with, with industry, but it was to do with 3D modeling. So this sort of thing was new to me as well. But for the companies, 
you know, again, they will give us data as long as that data doesn't get shared with other companies. Mm-hmm. We can they can we can share the interpretations of that data, but not the raw data. And the same thing applies with geological surveys. We have all the geophysical data for West Africa on the condition that we don't give it to anybody that hasn't already bought it. Yeah, so okay. that trust takes time to develop, and as you know. It, it's not something that you can just walk in and say, hi, I'm here, mm-hmm. because they've been burnt enough times before from people doing exactly that. Yeah. And, and I guess there's also, you know, once the once the, the ball is rolling, you know, you create a, a, a community of researchers, of students, uh, of people who are, you know, like-minded and, and like to work together. Uh, and and you not, when you finish a project, we're always thinking, oh, what's next? Because we want to keep doing it. I mean, I guess, you know, there's a, there's a real drive uh, uh, within the individual participants of Waxi of actually make it continue, you know, because the journey is, is not only uh, uh, fantastic from many, many mm-hmm. uh, professional aspects, but from a human point of view, it's a, it's a great journey. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Well, I mean, the reason why I asked the time question is because, you know, like one of the criticisms on, I guess, one of these big projects is that they take a long time. And yeah, what you guys are kind of talking about, just from like the, not the technical point of view, that, you know, it takes time to unravel the technical mystery. Uh, but they are, the reality of it is that any big area where you have multiple countries involved, you know, they're, all, they're not all going to sit in the same kind of curve, you know, politically or security, mm-hmm. all of these things. And then also the other component around the people and the knowledge building and all of that stuff takes time. You know, so I think, you know, like from an industry point of view, if I kind of like you look at the, you know, the thing that industry often kind of complains about these things is that, you know, oh, it takes too long. It's like, yeah, but when you have this many kind of cogs moving around and this complicated machinery, you know, it's, it's quite unrealistic to expect something like that to be done in a short time frame. I guess you, you, you're right. If you take the whole Waxy adventure, yeah, it's 15 years. But mm-hmm. if you look at each was... Uh, it, I mean, that that large uh, mm-hmm. chunk of time was actually dissected in 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 stages, which yep. were you know associated with more short term deliverable. Yeah. So I guess it's it's the recognition at the end of that kind of stage three that we still have a lot of questions to resolve. We've progressed, but there's a lot more to uh, to to be addressed. And I guess I mean industry recognized that very well. But it's you know far from from understanding every every. Uh, that is required to yeah, get across right. on the map kind of thing. I mean, I guess the thing that, you know, it's like everyone wants a house, but no one wants to wait for the bricks yeah. to be put in place. <laughs> right? And that's kind of the, the thing that yeah, I think people enough. have to be aware of. And that's an industry thing full stop. Like industries now working in the developing world that needs to understand that trust is a really important element of social license. And so even this is on a scale of research data, it's still the same theme, which is you can't walk into seven different countries and tell them what to do. Mm. The answer is trust has to be built. And the industry's got to learn to build partnerships and build trust. That's kind of the whole theme of what we're talking that's about right. here. Um, I, I want to move on from Waxy because that's not the reason we're, we're here. But before we go, I want you to hit me with some numbers. So just tell me, uh, I'm sure you've got them off the top of your head, Mark, but things like you know, outputs of the number of students and all the, all the sort of stuff that's, that's important for metrics. Yeah, well, I mean, the, in terms of the students, I think I haven't done the count recently, but it's over 100 uh, graduate students have gone through WAXI funding one way or another, of which two-thirds of them come from Africa, so, and the rest are principally Australia and France. 
And we're ah. talking, uh, I guess, masters, masters uh, and, PhD. and PhDs, essentially. Yeah. So it's postgrad students. Yeah. Yep. And um, we've got about 110 publications out of it. So, you know, again, we, we as researchers, we've done very well out of it. So it's mm. part of the part of the partnership agreement is that everybody's got to get something out of it. Otherwise, why, what are we doing? And as researchers, we've From, certainly yeah. done quite a lot of it. Um, and we've built up a, a big waxy database of, of information which we share with all the partners. And that's all the data that the geological surveys have given us that they've allowed us to pass on, plus all of the integrated harmonized data sets that we've put together by taking in the individual data sets, plus, of course, all the data we've collected ourselves. And so that's a big you know, GIS database that people can do whatever they want with. And that's you know, going back to this thing of being a long time, it's taken us time to build this, but now we've got this big database. And every time we've had a project, we've had a different set of companies. It mm-hmm. the same companies that have been with, you know, half of those companies don't exist anymore. No, so, and so it's, you know, there's some, some companies have been with us the whole time, but um, there's, um, you know, every time there's a new, new combination of com- companies interested. But going back to the numbers, yeah, and in terms of organizations, there's sev- over 70 organizations, so that's geological surveys, universities, companies, uh, other research organizations that have been involved in it. We've also had involvement with not-for-profit organizations mm-hmm. and with regional um, organizations like UMOA, which is the big Francophone political group in West Africa. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be unique. I haven't seen NGOs being involved in research so how did that come about? How did you get? Oh, it was it was one of those. We weren't looking for it particularly at the beginning, but we I had a postdoc called Lucy Benalla, who um, was doing working in West Africa. Funded, he had a Luxembourg funding to do a postdoc with us for a couple of years, and when he was at university, he set up a, a not for profit in Luxembourg, working exclusively in Burkina Faso, working with local villages to do whatever the local villages wanted. So what was really nice about that NGO is they didn't go in and say, we're going to build you a dam. They went in and sat down and talked to everybody and worked out what they actually wanted, which he does that way better than mm. I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and so they've got this NGO. And then after his postdoc, in the end, he decided he, for a number of different reasons that he wanted to go back and work for the NGO. But that there was an obvious parallels you know he had a geology background he was very invested in west africa and so in stage two of waxy um sorry in stage three of waxy they took over the capacity building which we'd done internally in the sense of organizing it and reaching out and getting people to teach courses and running the scholarships and things like that and that was great and that lasted throughout waxy three and then at the end of that, the the NGO board sort of said, this is, we understand why you're doing this, but it's really, it's a little bit off from what everything else we do. And so at that point, that's actually when we just said, okay, we've, we've been talking about this for 10 years. It was actually in the Waxy proposal for stage three to develop a spin-off capacity building organization. And so that's how we ended up setting up Agate last year. So one question, I guess, before we move off, uh, Waxy, what does the end of Waxy look like in your mind? 
I'm not sure that there is an end because yeah. there's always going to, you know, as we said, geology is really complicated mm -hmm. and there's new techniques being developed all the time. And those techniques, there's no, you know, we talk again, we're talking about West Australia in terms of area divided up into 12 or 13 countries. Mm -hmm. And so there will always be a need for a regional synthesis of data and a regional program, whether it's run by us or whether it's run by... Um, some of the, the really clever students that are now in lectureships in West Africa, you know, ideally that would be the, that's the end game. Is yep. that, that collaboration continues, but it's not us that's leading it anymore. Yeah, okay. Cool. So before we get concrete around Agate, um, still on the waxy theme was, um, you had UNESCO involved, people, who, who was involved in waxy outside uh, in terms of the larger... NTT is going to... Yeah. Say that again. <laughs> <laughs> just before we move on to uh, to Agate properly, just to finish up on Waxy, what other organisations were associated with, with Waxy in terms of the larger institutions? Well, I guess in, in France, it was the IRD, which is, as I said, is like a national mm -hmm. laboratory. So that's quite a large organization but if you go to the international organizations um the as i said umoa which is the economic and monetary organization in west africa for francophone countries principally francophone countries um there we when the im4dc got set up in in australia and that was funded by ausaid we had uh, parallel projects running through AusAid as well. I mean, we, we talk with other organizations like the African Union has taken over the role of the African Minerals Development Center, AMDC. And so, you know, we've had discussions with them before, but it's, you know, honestly, they don't, they don't have the same sort of access to funding. The World Bank has access to funding, obviously, mm -hmm. but they almost exclusively work in single countries. Because they are, after all, they're not giving out money, they're, they're organizing loans. And so the World yeah. Bank has to have, each country in turn has to sign a loan. And so the Waxy model, although they, they're very interested and they actually came back to me a couple of weeks ago about whether there was something we could do, their model isn't really set up for doing these regional collaborations, which is interesting in its own right. And so you, you're chose to do this again in South America. So take us through the beautiful acronym SACSI. <laughs> well, this, and that was you know, obviously somewhat related. And it was the companies that were working in West Africa that were also working in South America that said, would you come and do this? And after a couple of four starts, yeah, we got it up and we're now in the second stage of that. And Similar groupings in Central Africa and in Eastern Africa, people have said, you know, wouldn't you like to do this here? Mm -hmm. Because people see it as a good model. And, you know, to be honest, yes, we could, but it was, it just happened to be the one in South America and the Guiana Shield got set up. And from a technical point of view, I mean, it's, it's the obvious place to go. If, uh, if you're, if you're working in the West African Craton, then yeah, you're stepping across right. the ocean and you are actually finding the same rocks. So it's actually is a, a missing pieces of the puzzle that is, is, is kind of, you know, glaring in. And so mm -hmm. yeah, it was 
I guess one of the attraction to kind of yeah. push. But they are multiple there. languages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's 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 very different in in many respects because yes, they're each we're working in five countries and they each speak a different language. So that's, <laughs> apart from all the local languages, yeah. um, and it's you, all jungle. So yeah, that's, that's slightly different. If you think from West Africa, if you think that the ad crop conditions are bad in West Africa, just go to, <laughs> go to the French. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they're, they're very different countries as well. I mean, you know, even though, as Aniko said, the West African countries are different, they're not as different as ours. Yeah. You know, you have France, that's different. Um, you have Venezuela, that's different. You have Brazil, that's different. And the only two that are similar in terms of development and and those sorts of things would be Guyana and Suriname. So it's very unbalanced compared to West mm. Africa, where even though they're all different, you know, some would be ahead and some would be behind in different things. In South America, you're really talking about very different scales of, mm-hmm. of country, in, both geographically because Brazil's so big, but also in terms of development. Mm. So we've mentioned Agate. So tell us what... What, what it is and tell us why you set it up. Well, well Agathe is, um, is, was really, as, as Mark said, at the end of Waxi uh, 3, the idea was to set up this organization that would take over the, the capacity building arm of Waxi. Um, and I guess one of, the, one of the thinking was, you know, the, the, we wanted that capacity building to continue regardless of the success, our success in raising funds for research um, because it needs to have continuity if we mm-hmm. want to achieve you know, our, the, the, the goals we're, we're trying to put uh, forward. And so with um, Le Soleil Dans La Main, which was that NGO we were working with, yeah. saying to us, look, you know, we're not going to really post in you anymore because it's not in line very much with what we're trying to achieve. Um, well, it was kind of the push we needed to, uh, to, to make it happen. So I guess that was about a year and a half ago. Uh, we've started to have that conversation uh, about setting up our own um, NGO that would be dedicated to um, further uh, capacity building and networking mm-hmm. in, uh, in, well, I guess, Africa. We've, we've, we've initially a strong focus in West Africa because that's where we, we've been operating. Um, and it's basically really trying to continue what we've been doing, which is delivering courses uh, for people that are uh, residing in, in Africa, um, and also, as a, as a, uh, as we thought about the structure, thought thing that we thought would be useful also is um, creating scholarships rounds so that we can uh, support postgraduate students uh, in Africa, uh, but also creating a, a scholarship that would be for young researchers. Uh, many doctors that are being graduated in Africa are basically swamped. Mm-hmm. to teaching very quickly, um, even more than what people can go through in, in, in Australia or in France. Um, and so the access and access to funding for research is, not, is far from being ideal. So the idea was if we can actually provide uh, a bit of funding, then that can help to further the research uh, career of, of our colleagues um, in, in, in West Africa. And with the idea that that's kind of help to further that collaborative spirits between the research groups. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so that's that's kind of where, where what was the onset? Uh, maybe a, yeah, no, I mean, just during Waxi, we stumbled across this great business model, which is what mm. we've taken up with, with Agate, mm-hmm. which is that we run um, industry uh, training courses 
Um, so we run courses on interpreting geophysics or advanced structural geology, regolith, whatever. And the industry pays us for those courses, and then we can use that money to fund scholarships and, and research. Yeah, okay. So it's actually great because we're training, and most of the people that we're training are African uh, employees of these companies anyway. So we're training people and getting money which can train other people. So yeah. it's a, it's a, it pure, purely by chance, it's a great business model for a charity because it means we don't have to sell sausages at Bunnings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so from, from that perspective, we've, it's actually quite workable. You know, if we have more people who are willing to give their time, to and we can even yeah. you know, pay people to give courses, mm-hmm. it's actually every time we give a course, we're training a, you know, 20, 25 African geos working for the companies and having money to train academic students That's going, right. going through university and young researchers. So we had, so, a, we had a model where if you charge basically two industry participants, you can invite to the course uh, a, a student from university academic or even people from the survey to come on board to the, to the, to the course also. Yeah. So, okay. so it, it is actually is been a, a, you know, great to be able to kind of, again, uh, enlarge in, in our reach uh, and, and not only training industry people, but training people that would never uh, have the ability necessarily to access those type of, of, uh, of training. Yeah. So the, the so the funding for Agate doesn't come from any of the Waxi partners or can come from them? Or do you want to try, like, do you keep it separate? Uh, we can take money from anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, we just slept $10 out of your wallet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think you, you thought like, we were doing this interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good luck trying to get no, money out of us. <laughs> I, guess, I guess money comes from essentially from, from it for Agat, essentially the money comes from those, those, uh, those courses. So yeah, the, okay. the, the initial seed funding we had was leftover of that money that uh, people like myself, Mark, uh, Lenka Baratu, and, and, and other researchers mm-hmm. that gave in courses. The money was sitting with the NGO. Mm-hmm. Um, and that money basically, when that uh, relationship ceased, they basically passed it to us. So that was our, our kind of seed funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are now basically running the, the, the IGAT project in the same kind of uh, way with running those courses, making income out of it, and reinvesting it in, in more training. Yeah, okay. and, in, and it, the difference, I guess, that we didn't do before was that they were not really that that scholarship scholarship scheme was not really operating uh, operating in uh, in Waxi. It's something that we've developed, I guess, through Agat, uh, which yep. is you know broader now. In terms of company involvement, they, if we're about to put out the Waxi for proposal to companies, and in that, Agate is is the capacity building is taken yeah. on the capacity building one. So the funding and it's, you know, to give credit to the companies at the end of Waxy 3, they said, you know, we love this project. There are two things, though, that stand out. One is the, the integrated analysis of the scale of the craton, and the other is the capacity building. Yeah. And so even the company, you know, it's, it's always written into the project that there will be this development yeah. side to it. And the I mean, I guess like totally on board. Like intuitively, it makes total sense that, you know, if you're a sponsor of a kind of project like Waxy, then, you know, if you have a formalized setup where you can show, you know, the value that you're actually contributing to that industry from a corporate social responsibility or anything like that, you know, it makes total oh, sense for them. Yeah. But, and there's, so that's clearly a, a good PR, I guess, for, for companies. Mm-hmm. But it's also is, is beyond that. I mean, they, they need 
people to be trained. They really desperately need yeah, people yeah, yeah, that can actually do the job. So yeah. uh, it actually is is in their best interest to contribute mm-hmm. to that. The, yeah, the, the, the exploration managers, uh, more than one of them has said, my, my principal job as an exploration manager in West Africa is training. And it's not, um, you know, the, this is just the reality. And, and to be fair, I've had exploration managers in Australia who say, what do you teach them at university? I always have to teach them from scratch when I get out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, they say it in a slightly different way. They're more annoyed in Australia than they are in Africa. Yeah. But it's, you know, there's no way that you can train somebody to be an exploration-ready geoscientist mm-hmm. in and the field. The, the future mm-hmm. for geoscience in Australia, we're talking a lot about that at the moment. We need yeah. some sort of non-for-profit charity <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's to develop geoscientists here. Yeah. I apologise to you all. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just going back on the, what can companies do? I mean, they can obviously they can mm. support the project, but we are working with companies to have named scholarships so they mm-hmm. can put in the entirety of a scholarship because they want to work with with they want to have their company support a local student on their deposits or on their permits mm-hmm. and so that can be a way of of us managing the the academic side of it while the company yep. gets to support a local local student well i mean i think it just seems like you know, in the world where you know particularly companies in mining are finding it hard to show that relationship between what they do and what impact they have on on, on society in general, you know, like initiatives like this, I think would, you know, would definitely kind of bridge that gap. Yeah. That like, you know, right now, the whole concept of, you know, local stakeholders and what, what benefit they get as opposed to kind of the global investor base, you know, in, in mining companies, you know, that's obviously a quite a touchy topic for a lot of companies. So, so you know, from that point of view, it makes total sense for companies to kind of partake in it. And to be fair, the, you know, the local exploration managers are just as dedicated just as keen on local development as we are. Yeah, you know, that's they, they they do see the value of it, but they also they they have the same. You know, if you work there, you can yeah. end up going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, long term, you're solving a problem that you know well, they solving is a big word. But yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. trying to solve. Let's yeah. say that. Well, we we're doing our bit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love the fact that it's independent. That's what attracts me the most. Yeah. To it. the fact that you know one of the answers to the first question we posed, which was about resource curse, which is actually the training mm. of the future. There's no doubt about capacity building is part of the answer to that. But industry always, people always view industry as having vested interests. And the fact that you can be somewhat independent from that, funded indirectly by it, but mm-hmm. nonetheless independent, I really think that's a model that we should be listening to mm. outside of Africa, outside of the, the obvious, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's again as you said that that applies in Australia as well. And I remember the first cooperative research centre I was part of. We had AGSO as they were at the time, and the universities and CSIRO, and it was a seven-year um, system. And it took us two and a half years to understand why on earth we all behaved differently, yeah. because until that time there'd been almost no collaboration. But, you know, a different scale of collaboration became possible, but it took a long time for people to understand why these different organizations have different drivers and that you shouldn't try and get them to change because that's, you know, their, their shareholders or their, you know, their organization is supposed to behave that way, but it takes a long time to understand why they behave that way mm-hmm. and therefore to work out how you can do it better. 
That's a classic example. We talk a lot about diversity without necessarily getting to the nitty-gritty of what it means, which is learning to work with people who are different. And the classic, you guys got us, you know, seven different countries. I'm really fascinated by Saxe because just straight up, right, I know those countries and they're vastly different to each other. Mm. But I can come right back to Australia and the difference between West Australia and South Australia, surveys, whatever you want to talk about, they're just fundamentally different. They operate differently. We do geology differently. They have different colors. Yeah, yeah. We've got different approaches to how we do things. And we just need to find ways to collaborate better than we currently do. And you guys are showing us how to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think, challenging environment. I think we get suckered into the fact that, you know, when you say survey, we have this idealized model of what the survey should be. But, yeah, in different countries, in different regions, the survey has a different role to play. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's an administrative center, sometimes it's a knowledge center, or sometimes it's, you know, something that melds different kind of things together. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so this idealized concept that we go, well, you know, if we just go to five countries and get five surveys to talk to each other, we can make the same value proposition to them. I just think, I don't, I don't think that, you know, that is fundamentally I don't think something that's going to work every single time mm-hmm. because they just have completely different you know, even you know we talk about say like Australia you know the way a survey looks like here is if you go to a US state you know a lot of the times in US states they're purely administrative centers you know mm-hmm. they're not really anything you know they're a regulatory body that's essentially all sure. they're kind of yeah. serving mm-hmm. so they're completely fundamentally different mm-hmm. in that sense look I mean in terms of the the you know and I guess it's not so much agat but in terms of the waxy model uh, I guess you know we, we've Taking example on what Mark kind of developed, that's the project that uh, we've been putting together recently in, in the Yilga. And it's exactly actually driven by the same type of approach mm-hmm. of collaborative between uh, industry, uh, researchers, uh, and, and, and the survey. And it's work, you know, like it's working. Like the, 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 the people that are in, enrolled in, in the, the Yilga 2020 project, which we are working here, are actually embracing that kind of approach. Um, mm-hmm. Interestingly, actually, a lot of the people from industry were people that were involved in Waxy as well. So <laughs> yeah. they're not, you know, coming not knowing about it. But the, the that kind of way of structuring a project, uh, I think, is really, um, from from my point of view, for understanding at the regional scale, it's really the way forward. Yeah, and I think yeah, like we kind of started the topic around talking about like resource curse, and I think one of the you know, things that we maybe as an industry are maybe getting a little bit wiser to it now. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, that term curse applies to is the fact that we haven't really used that wealth in kind of a generational way. You know, we haven't quite used whatever wealth we created or the resources that we had. You know, we haven't quite created in a sustainable way where there's a a transgenerational effect in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so things like I think the capacity building, you know, these are things that we should kind of look at in in the fact that they are possibly going to be or have the potential to be transgenerational. Right? That like, you know, yeah. that you can kind of allow that thing to build. And yeah, you know, the 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 detriment I, I guess for the industry is that it's not going to be a short term payoff. I know. You know, it'll it's be something you have time. to wait. I mean like one of the things I remember one of the discussion we had um um, with uh, with uh, uh, Luke Sinebeller, who is the person who was working uh, at, uh, who's still working at that NGO, uh, and we were discussing, and he's obviously very much into the the uh, capacity building on on very much different ranges, not only in geoscience like what we're doing here. And one of the things that he told me is that um, in Dakar, most of the uh, senior lecturers were about to retire, mm-hmm. and that there w- was no new kind of you know academic that was going to be there to take over and and be the next generation of trainers and that i think is just you know like it screams in your face this is something that if you don't have a professor of geology in a department you basically close the door 
And well, forget about having you know local geoscientists that are going to be your workforce. It's not going to happen. And so it's it's all about you know not only of course you know training uh, and contributing to the training of, of geologists in, enrolled in, in industry and so on, but it's also you know working closely with our our uh, counterparts in, in in Western African nations to actually okay well let's try to put in place you know part of the support that can you know lead to the next generation of of, mm -hmm. of scientists um to to be completely honest if if we were to uh, the best thing that could happen is for Agat to have to close the door in 10 years because we are irrelevant mm -hmm. um that would be a good measure of our success. If we still have to kind of continue to do what we're doing for the next 30 years, then I think we need to ask ourselves, are we really part of the solution or are we just continuing a model that is not delivering? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you guys end up making self-redundant in a certain amount of time, I think that, you know, that'll be the best outcome. Yeah. So I can see in both your faces that you love training the future. Both of you. This must be quite... Um, this must be quite nice to see the development of geoscientists over uh, yeah. the last 15 years and then continuing on. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think that's clearly the thing that both of us are most proud of is the, the fact that there's these 65 students that have gone through, funded partially or entirely by WAXI and now by Agate as well. We had our first round of mm -hmm. scholarships. Uh, mm. earlier this year where we gave out five scholarships and do the same thing again coming up soon. And so now in Dakar, in Accra, in Ghana, in Abidjan, in Burkina, in, yeah, in Namako, right. they're lecturers who went through with Waxi, which is that's as good as it gets mm. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And you know it's and we still work with them, with most of them at least, and so that you know they are now and they actually are now uh, you know in the wax cv4 which yeah. is at the next stage they actually are researchers that are basically proposing research modules and so on so they mm -hmm. are now starting which was probably not as much part of the initial dna of the structure of the projects but now you know we see that transfer that really is starting to happen which is really exciting yeah, yeah cool what well, I, I probably want to wrap it up by asking um how to how do other people get involved in, in Agate or how do people get involved? Well, for Agate, just, yeah, contact us. Um, if you want to be involved, we're looking for people that have a skill that they are happy to uh, to teach and to share with, uh, we can do it online, we can probably not do it too much face-to-face, -to -face, although if there's listeners that are based in Africa and wants to actually set up some courses, be, come, you know, be in touch because we, we are looking to have more people at the moment Mark and I are, are carrying the flag, but you know there's so much we can teach in a, in a year, I guess. Um, so we are looking for, for, for more people to come on board. If there's industry partners that have a heavy wallet and don't know what to do with their cash, <laughs> we are very happy to help them with that. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Mark, I don't know. Yeah, if you no, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's, you know, the business model at the moment is centered on training because it works, it works both ways. It works in the training and in the money we make mm -hmm. from the training. So, and, you know, there's a limited amount of time that Nico and I have, and there's also lots of stuff we don't know how to teach. Mm. So there's a whole range of courses that we could, that would be interesting to um, uh, industry in around the world, but particularly in, in Africa in our case, that 
if somebody wants to give a, a week of their time to, to give a course, that would just be fantastic. Cool. So do you, uh, last two questions? All right, so uh, we're at the end of our interview, so we always ask two questions. So first one... <laughs> I should uh, listen to the show more often. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's all right. Um, so the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in our industry? So it can be an idea, a concept, a behavior that you think we need to jettison out of our industry. And you guys can have a go at it. Each. I think something that needs to die is the idea that industry has the right to mine. Mm -hmm. And you still see that in conferences where people go, oh, I'm not going to that country because they wouldn't give me a permit that time. And it's mm -hmm. like, it's their permit, it's their land. And that's true internally and externally is that mm -hmm. industry doesn't have the right to mine. It's got to be a partnership. That's yeah. a great one. Yeah. The pressure is on. Pressure is on. This is, he said something really, really, really smart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what could I have to stop? I guess related to, uh, well, I guess it's kind of somehow related, but related to what we are trying to do here is um, I've started to work in, 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 in this kind of field um, a bit reluctantly, to be honest. When I started, when I remember when Cam tapped on my shoulder saying, oh, you, do you want to kind of take some project in West Africa? And my vision was, Right, I don't want to be part of this because this is there's too much ugliness happening. So I guess it's it's a similar kind of thing. It's just the that kind of behavior arriving as a, a neo-colonialist um, mm -hmm. who kind of feel like because he's white and being privileged can actually uh, uh, dig out stuff and treat people um, poorly is is has to disappear. Uh, for good. I mean, we have to put the 20th century behind us. But, but that applies forward. to researchers. Well. And that happens yeah. to researchers completely. But I guess it's just, a, it was probably more screaming from an industry point of view. Yeah, but actually, um, I mean... But like, it is true. It's, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, completely yeah. right. It's not only, we are as, we, we can be as bad as, as anyone else. That's, that's very true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, that's, those are great ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so conversely, and the last question, what is something that you think should live in our industry? Uh, is something that's fundamental to our DNA that we should never forget? Geology. <laughs> Field work. Dude. Field work. Geology, you know, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, we've, we've run a, a, a course recently and then, um, that was just coordinated with, uh, with Nick Oliver, who's a fantastic geoscientist that most of you guys would know. Um, and one of the thing, and he's been very much into, you know, fusion data and, and working with numerical tools and so on. And one of the messages he said is, you know, these are great tools, but don't forget geology. You know, you need to first be a geologist before being mm -hmm. able to apply those tools. So, yeah, let's not forget geology. Good one. That's it. That's Thanks exactly. a lot for joining us, guys. <laughs> no worries. Thanks. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. This episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Mark Salim and Steve Beresford. Produced by Sean Jeffrey, edited by Hamayu Mir, and recorded live in July 2021. This episode was sponsored by the Society of Economic Geologists, the SCG, the One to One Group, and the Assay. Find out more about them on our website, explorationradio.com. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at explorationradio.com. You can also reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, let's keep exploring.